for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. Who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Amen. If you're new here and you don't know what that means, just a bunch of big fancy words that mean that we trust God's word, we think it's completely sufficient for everything that we need. There are four main types of irony, or so I'm told by Wikipedia, and the idea behind every form of irony is that we are impacted when we encounter something that is the opposite of what we expected to happen. So irony can be funny, like when your dog eats his certificate of dog training obedience, insert laugh. It can be confusing, like when you find out your pulmonologist, a lung doctor, that he smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. Sometimes irony can be tragic, like the case of Vital Hassan, the only Jew in all of Europe to be tried and executed after World War II. His crime? He was a voluntary bounty hunter, for the Nazis. Sometimes irony is something that we just stumble upon as we are living our lives. You bought a new pair of scissors in that really thick plastic packaging and you can't use the scissors, you can't, right? Other times, irony is a tool that is deliberately employed in order to make a point. So a good dad joke of whom I am, I'm a connoisseur, right? He often uses irony to make people laugh Politicians can also use irony to make us think. That's irony. In this morning's text, Paul employs a tool known as verbal irony when he's addressing the subject of false teachers. He actually uses irony, the same form of irony, three times in the very first verse, verse 2 of this morning's text. And all of this irony is directed at these false teachers, it's weaponized against them. Because they were saying, in order to come to Jesus, in order to be made right with God, you have to become Jewish. That's what we see in verse 2. 
And let me just read it again so we see the irony. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, how is this ironic? First, Paul calls these false teachers dogs. This is ironic because Jews used dog as an epithet in reference to Gentiles. And he's saying, no, if you're saying that Gentiles have to become Jews in order to know God, then you're actually the dog. These false teachers uh, also, they, they preach a gospel that says that you can only be saved by righteous observance of the law. So in, in, in verse 2, Paul says that these false teachers are evildoers. Do you see that? You can only be saved if you do good. And Paul says if you preach that, you're actually a doer of evil. And then finally, Paul calls these false teachers mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because these false teachers were telling people, oh, you have to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And he says, what you're really doing here is you're taking what's supposed to be this sign of God's grace on your life and you're, you're turning it into a symbol of destruction by saying that you trust in it. So instead of giving people a sign of grace, you're actually mutilating their flesh, you false teachers. And then the final dash of irony in this morning's text is not really in what Paul writes per se, but in the fact that Paul is the one writing it in the first place. Remember, before Paul became a Christian, he was a zealous advocate of works-based righteousness. But then he met Jesus. He had his whole world blown up by grace. And Paul says that, that, that these false teachers, they, they came along and now they're preaching a view of grace that is actually the view that he used to teach, which is really no grace at all. Now, the use of irony is always tinged with comedy. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake that this morning's text is not a laughing matter. This morning's text is a warning. You see that language in verse 2? Look out for these people. Beware of these people. Be on guard. Protect yourselves, your families, and your churches against this kind of teaching. What that means for you this morning as we preach from this section of God's word is that God has brought you here this morning to warn you, to tell you, be on the lookout, be warned. The dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, false teachers are out there and they are trying to lead you away from God and his righteousness to hell. And this is something that's been happening, this idea that we can be made righteous through our own good deeds. It's the very first thing that human beings did when they realized that they sinned. So you remember the story of Adam and the fall in Genesis 3, right? He, God said, you know, don't sin. Adam said, actually, I will sin. And then as soon as he sinned, he realized that he was unrighteous. And do you remember what he did when he came to that realization? He tried to fix it himself. Then the eyes of both were opened, says Genesis 3-7. And they knew that they were naked, which is symbolic of, of shame, right? They've come to the awareness of the fact that they are without covering in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And it says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They tried to fix their own sin problem. Adam placed confidence in himself, in his flesh, 
And this is an anti-gospel impulse that lives on in the, in the heart of every son of Adam. In you, in me, in these false teachers, in everyone. We want to fix ourselves without God's help. And we can't do it. We want to provide our own righteousness. We love to trust in our flesh. So what that means is that when some false teacher comes along and he says, hey, I can show you how you can fix your relationship with God without anyone's help. There's something in you that says, I like the sound of that. Tell me more. So watch out for the dogs. Now, if we look at all 10 of these verses at once, they can seem kind of overwhelming, right? Like, we cover a lot of subjects. False teachers, circumcision, true worship, Pharisees, righteousness, rubbish, resurrection, suffering. Oh my, it's a lot. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that all of these themes in this morning's text, they're like streams and tributaries all leading back to the main river running through this text. Here's the main river in this text. In what or in whom shall we place our confidence for righteousness? In what or in whom shall we place our confidence, our trust? What can we rely on to fix our problem of unrighteousness? Will we trust in our flesh or faith? Will we trust in our own good works of the law or in Christ's finished work on the cross? You can see this contrast pretty clearly in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Paul says that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. That depends on faith. Two different kinds of righteousness. One that comes from his own works. The other that comes from the works of Christ. One that comes from flesh. The other that comes from faith. But you don't have to get to verse 9 before you see this theme developed. You can see it all the way back in verse 3. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4 in a second. We're going to see that Paul uses the phrase confidence in the flesh three times. Three times. So just, if you'd like to like highlight or underline or mark up your Bibles, this would be a good time to do that. Starting in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. When you see something repeated like that in the Bible, that's a like flashing, like arrows, pay attention to me, this is very important. So what does it mean to place confidence in the flesh? This is supremely important. It's the difference between true and false worship. It's the difference between being truly circumcised at the heart level and being merely circumcised in the flesh. It's the difference between whether or not these people who are going to be baptized later actually know God or just getting wet on a Sunday morning. This is huge. False teachers are teaching people to place confidence in their flesh rather than Christ alone. So it's really important that we know what it means. 
And at this point, I don't think I can offer a better succinct definition of what it means to place confidence in the flesh than John Calvin's. This is a paraphrase, but he basically says that we place confidence in the flesh whenever we trust in or rely on anything other than Christ alone for our righteousness. Whenever we trust in or rely on anything other than Christ to fix our righteousness problem with God. Now, the reason why this text may not immediately resonate with you as you read it, even though you have a righteousness problem, is because it has a very Jewish flavor, right? Paul is talking through his own experience, and his own experience was that of trying to find his righteousness through his Jewishness, right? And so you see in verses 5 and 6, he lays out his spiritual resume, his Jewish accolades, right? Circumcised on the eighth day, a son of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And some of us are like, why does that matter? We're not going to talk about that this morning, but just know it's a big deal. A Pharisee, which means that he was very zealous for the law. So Paul says, listen, when it comes to like confidence in the flesh, no one had more reason to be confident than I did. I was crushing it. I was killing it. These false teachers are telling you that you have to be Jewish in order to belong to God, but no one was more Jewish than me, and I was totally and completely lost in my Jewishness. And then in verse 8, Paul says that all of his Jewish pride, his right ritual, his right ancestry, his right morals, bunny ears around all of those rights. What's the word that's not bunny ears? Somebody help me. Quotes, there it is. I'm happy that happened. He says that all of that, right ritual, right ancestry, right morals, amounted to nothing more than a pile of garbage. Look at verse 8. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them. And that all things is that spiritual resume, right? I, I count all of that as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, listen, this word translated as rubbish here in your English Bibles, it's a very sanitized version of the Greek word, which basically means a big stinking, worthless pile of crap. And I know you're going to say, Sean, you probably shouldn't say crap from the pulpit. And I'm not using the strongest word I could use. But I think in this case, it's reasonable. Because that's what Paul says this stuff is. If you are trying to save yourself through your own works, trusting in your own flesh, you are trusting in crap that is masquerading as gospel. And parents, if you're like on the way home with your kids today and they say, Mom, Dad, why did Pastor Sean say crap from the pulpit today? You can have a conversation with them about sometimes it being appropriate to use strong language to describe things that are really evil and really dangerous. So if I were to place a, a big pile of dung, like right here, just this nice open space, Maybe we went to the Birmingham Zoo and collected a big pile of it and brought it back and dumped it right here. And if I were to ask you, will you place all of your spiritual confidence in this dung 
to make you righteous before God? Will you bet your eternity on the ability of this pile of excrement to fix your righteousness problem? What would you say? Right? If you said yes, you'd be insane. You'd be crazy, right? You'd be so obviously totally spiritually blind. But that's exactly what Paul says we do when we place our confidence in our flesh, in our good works, in our own righteousness. We say that this big steaming pile of excrement can make me right with God. Now I know this sounds a little ridiculous. Nobody would actually think that way. But we do, and we see it all throughout the Bible, right? This is why the prophet Isaiah told Israel that your righteousness, that is your attempt to be right with God through your own righteous deeds, he says, it's like filthy rags. And if you think the word crap is a little too strong, wait till you find out what filthy rags means. From Adam to Israel... From Philippi to Decatur, Alabama, human beings love to trust in themselves more than God. So, I want us to ask ourselves a very, perhaps the most important question this morning. What are we trusting in for our righteousness? Where have we placed our confidence? In Christ or in something else? I highly doubt that there's anyone in, in this building this morning, maybe Andrew used to do this, who places their confidence in their Jewishness. That's a funny inside joke that you all get to be a part of. But seriously, I doubt that there's anyone here this morning who's trusting in their Jewish heritage or their old covenant Jewish rituals for salvation. But that doesn't mean that you are not still at some level trusting in something that is utterly worthless to save you. So let's run through some of the things that we might be trusting in. Maybe you're not trusting in circumcision to save you, but you might be trusting in your baptism. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with someone and said, hey, I'd love to hear your testimony. Tell me how you got saved. And they'll just tell me about the day they got baptized. Well, your baptism, I mean, it's, it's indicative, it's pointing to something, but it doesn't really tell me about when you came to understand that you're a sinner in need of Christ alone for salvation. When the bottom fell out for you and you cried out to God, I can't save myself, I need you to save me. Baptism comes after that. I just, listen, for the five people who are about to be baptized here in a little while, This is a very important day. It's a very special day. You're going to tell your family and the world and the church. You're going to make this declaration before all the angels of heaven and all the enemies of God and hell. You're going to make this declaration that you have been saved. Which means that you cannot trust in the baptism itself for your salvation because the baptism itself says, I've already been saved. Baptisms cannot save us. Only trusting in Christ can. Now maybe you've placed all of your confidence in something similar to a baptism, but not exactly the same thing. Maybe you've experienced an altar call, right? It's not in the Bible, but for like 150 years, we've been doing it, right? And so maybe you had an experience at a church camp 
or just some other kind of Christian camp or a Christian conference where you invited to, if you want to give your life to the Lord, walk down the aisle. And you did it, and it was very emotional, and the lights were off, and the music was moving, and the people were counseling, and you were crying and praying. And, and then you left there, and your life didn't change at all. You lived exactly the same way. And then someone comes along and says, hey, are you a Christian? And you're like, oh, yeah. You better believe it. I have the date written down in my Bible. I remember when I walked down the aisle at Camp Winnipesaukee. <laughs> right? Walking down an aisle can't save you. Now listen, you can't actually be saved as you walk down the aisle if you walk down an aisle convicted of the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you put all of your hope in Christ as you do. But walking down an aisle cannot save us. You probably don't place much confidence in your ethnic heritage like the Jews did, but you might place confidence in your spiritual heritage. I met a man one time who was utterly convinced that he was a Christian because his dad was a pastor and his granddaddy was a pastor and his great-granddaddy was a pastor. And I said, well, yeah, but, like, but what about your walk with God? And he's like, that is my walk with God. I know a man who pretty much is convinced that he's good with God because he's a deacon in the church. I've met people who would probably never say this out loud, but they're obviously placing all of their confidence in the fact that they are a member of a particular denomination, right? I'm in the SBC, I'm in the Church of God, I'm in the PCA, right? And for them, that identity with a body of organized religion is their confidence before God. That's dumb. Maybe you don't place much confidence in your ability to keep the law, but you place an abundance of confidence in your theological knowledge. Listen up, Sixth Avenue. This is the danger that you probably most of all need to pay attention to. You probably get tired of hearing me say it, which means I'm probably saying it the right amount. We are the theology church. We're the doctrine church, and that's not wrong or bad. I don't apologize for that. It's good to think right and true thoughts about God. What we think when we think about God is the most important thing that we can ever think, says A.W. Tozer. But we might mistakenly come to equate what we know about God with actually having a saving knowledge of God. Your knowledge of the Bible does not equal saving faith. Reading a bunch of dead Puritans does not one a Christian make. Your love for Reformed theology can trump your love for Christ, which means that you might not actually love Christ. You might place more hope in your theological knowledge and convictions than the finished work of Christ on the cross. Our theology cannot save us. Have we learned nothing from the Pharisees? Apart from love for God and knowledge of God in a saving relationship, our theology is dumb. Your righteousness is not found in following the right teachers or reading the right books or going to the right conferences or listening to the right podcasts or being on the right side of certain theological debates or agreeing with the elders in the church about certain theological matters. You can get all of that totally, completely, 100% right 
and still be totally unrighteous in God's sight. Some of us might be placing our confidence in our church membership. I love Sixth Avenue. I love my church. I spent the last six years here. I wouldn't change a second of it. I think we are a vibrant, healthy, loving church. Imperfect, yes, but man, I love us. But you should know that being a member here does not mean that you are right with God. We do our best to look at people and to assess their testimonies and to see if they are really bearing the fruit of repentance and if they're really walking in faith before we receive them in membership. But we're wrong. We're human beings. We're not God. We sometimes receive people into membership who are totally unregenerate. And you can hide the fact that you're unregenerate all the way until the day that you die. So do not think that membership in this church or in any church equals righteousness with God. Don't even equate church attendance with righteousness with God, right? That's what we do. We go, how can I know that I'm right with God? Well, I'm giving money to the church and I'm showing up on Sunday mornings and I'm feeding the poor. You can do all of those things and be totally and completely lost. Just look at the secular Jewish community in New York. I know so many secular Jews, I know of really, who they love to go to synagogue. They don't believe in the God of the Bible at all. You know, they went through Torah school, they had all the ceremonies, and they love to go there because it's just, it's, it's edifying, it's, it's insightful, it's useful, it helps build a strong family and community, but they don't believe any of it. It's totally possible for you as a Christian to do the exact same thing. Some of us, and this one might strike you a little sideways, might be placing our confidence in our diet That is, we might be placing our confidence in the food and drink and supplements that we consume or don't consume. I know this might sound strange, but what you see in the New Testament in the Pharisees is that they have an obsession with food and how food relates to religion. And the fact of the matter is, is that that's not a pharisaical impulse, that's a fundamental human impulse. We, everything becomes a matter of religion and we can place our confidence in anything. And so in our modern, pseudo-spiritual, neo-pagan world, we can place our confidence in the things that we consume or don't consume. From essential oils to fad diets to supplementation regimes, we can try to medi- uh, excuse me, mediate our relationship with God through food and drink. We can try to exercise our feelings of guilt and shame through our diet. But you can eat or not eat and drink and not drink all of the right things and still be totally wrong with God. Don't believe the lie that says that just because we don't observe Jewish dietary customs that we still don't try to find our righteousness through food. Can I keep going? Maybe your confidence in the flesh is not mediated through your zealous observance of the law, but it is mediated through just your emotional experiences in general. Right? Maybe you believe that you're right with God <coughs> simply because you feel like you're right with God. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people who are totally living in rebellion against God, and I go, what do you think? How's your relationship with God? Are you right with God? And they're like, oh, I'm good with God. You can believe that. You can't bet on the stock market, but you can bet on the fact that me and God are good. Friends, listen to me. Your emotions are an unreliable guide 
to what you think is true about your relationship with God. Right? Look at verse 6 in this morning's text. Paul says, as to zeal. Now, that, that's not an action. It leads to action, but that's a heart disposition. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So Paul is saying before his conversion, he placed great spiritual confidence in his emotional life. He saw his zealous heart for the law, so zealous that he was willing to kill people for going against the law. He saw that zeal, that emotion, as evidence that his heart belonged to God. But when he got saved, he came to see that the opposite was true. His emotions were actually bearing witness against him that his whole life was working at cross purposes with God and his gospel. They revealed that, in fact, he was an enemy of God, no matter how much he thought he was serving God in excitement. In Romans 10, Paul addresses this reality. He says, I've come to know Christ, but a lot of my fellow, fellow Jews, according to the flesh, uh, they still have this zeal. They think, that, they think that their zeal is an indicator that they're right with God. And this is what he says in Romans 10. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You see that? Their emotions aren't grounded in truth. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Isn't that interesting that Paul connects their zeal with their inability to comprehend how we obtain righteousness. They're zealous, but not for the gospel. In Jesus' ministry, he tells the parable of the sower. You remember he scatters seed and all these different people, soil and all that. And, and one example that he gives is, a, is of a group of people who, when they hear the gospel, they receive it with great joy, right? That's the language of emotion, right? With joy, they go, I like Jesus. I'm going to be on team Jesus. But then Jesus says the joy fades because the joy wasn't born of God. They never truly belonged to God. It was a carnal joy. Their emotions were misleading, not just to them, but even to people who might have been observing them. So friends, the point is simple enough. Don't confuse excitement for Jesus with faith in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be excited for Jesus, but like, guys, do you remember when we walked through the Gospel of John, didn't that teach us anything? Everywhere Jesus goes, people get angry at him and people get excited for him. But that doesn't mean that any of them actually know him. There's nothing wrong, and in fact, there's everything good about a strong, vibrant, emotional life that accompanies and flows out of our faith in Christ. It's a really good thing. It's, it's something that if you don't have it, you might actually not know Christ. But we cannot place our confidence, our ultimate confidence, in our emotions because they cannot save. It's also possible that you might be placing your confidence in your own moral scruples. Right? That's what Paul says. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? You might be like Paul. You, just, you look at the Ten Commandments and you go, actually, I'm kind of crushing it. Right? You might be like the rich young ruler who, when Jesus says, you know, like, what do you have to, he asked Jesus, what do you have to do to be saved? And Jesus was like, well, you got to keep the law. And he's like, 
Nailed it. I guess I'm good. Right? That might be how you are thinking about your life. Probably because you're doing righteousness in relativity. Right? You're, you're comparing yourself not to Christ and his perfect righteousness, but to other people. And you go, well, I'm not as bad as them, so I must be doing pretty good. But friends, we are not saved. We cannot be saved by a strict adherence to a list of do's and don'ts. Even if that list of do's and don'ts is found in the Bible. If we could be saved through rule following, God would have saved us, not by giving us the gift of faith, but by giving us the gift of willpower. More discipline. We wouldn't need grace. We would just need to strengthen the muscles of our intellect and our will. We wouldn't need a savior. We would need a moralizing life coach. We would need a Jocko Willink, a David Goggins, a Jordan Peterson, an Oprah Winfrey. God sent us a Jesus of Nazareth. God's grace, friends, should empower us to obey. But that obedience is not what saves us. It's evidence of the fact that we have already been saved. God's grace gives us the ability to believe that every promise of God is yes in Christ Jesus. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we read earlier in the service? Listen to how that parable begins. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves for their righteousness. And the parable goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And you should pause right here and recognize that's one's a good guy. And the other is a bad guy. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That was Paul before his conversion. Right? That was Adam in the garden. Okay, whew, covered, I'm good. That was Israel in the time of the temple. That was you and me before we understood what grace was. Here is my list of spiritual accomplishments. I'm not bad like him. I do all these good things over here. Therefore, I must be right with God. And here's how Jesus responds. He says that the tax collector was standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. For I am a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. And that word justified, it means counted righteous. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're a visitor here this morning, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. But I have to let you know that this is the only way that you can be made right with God. If you are visiting this morning thinking that this is the beginning of you turning over a new leaf in your life and you're finally going to start doing right by God and you're going to fix everything and that all begins with you doing the good moral thing of going to church, I'm, I'm telling you, you're already off. But praise God, you came to a church where we're going to tell you how you can get right back on the path. It's not by giving all your money. It's not by weekly attendance. It's not by prayer. It's not by feeding the homeless. All those things are good, but that's not how you can be made right with God. The only way you can be made right with God 
is if you will, in humility, get on your face before God and beat your chest and say, I am a sinner and I need you to save me. And God has never turned away anyone who does that. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how much shame you have. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed. We could swap stories after service one day, but none of that matters. What matters is that we are humble before God. If we will humble ourselves before God, even if I never see you again, if you're just here visiting and you don't actually know Christ and you leave here today, I want you to know, even if I never see you again, if you come to truly see yourself like this, you will be justified. You will be right with God. And we will see each other again in heaven. The difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector is that the Pharisee placed all of his confidence in the flesh. Amen. But the tax collector, he knew he had nothing to offer God. His whole life was rubbish. But here's the thing. Both of them had lives of rubbish. The only difference between them is that the tax collector recognized it. This story is so strange to our religious sensibilities because the egregious sinner in this story has the spiritual advantage over the devoutly religious character. But that's the upside-down logic of the gospel. Members of Sixth Avenue, I hope you understand that your proximity to righteousness through good works, which is good, also places you in a category of spiritual danger. You are much more likely than the people that I preach, at, preach to uh, at the jail on Monday night. You are much more likely to place your confidence in the flesh, in religious things, in the external. At least they know that they have no righteousness to stand on. So be careful, be, be, be wise. Do all the good works that Christ has called you to do, but remember that none of them can save you. They're only evidence of the fact that you have already been saved by His grace and His grace alone. Examine your life. Examine your religious life, your moral life, your emotional life, your family life, and ask yourself, am I willing to count all of these things as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him? Not having a righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that comes from God through faith. Now, we've done a lot of work tearing down every pretense that we might have for confidence in the flesh. But then that leaves us with a question. Where should our confidence be? And the answer, of course, is in the finished work of Christ alone. Now, you probably... You probably notice that I keep using the word Christ, I, I keep using the word alone, right? Grace alone, Christ alone. Why do I keep using this word alone? Because there's something in us that says, okay, I hear you, Sean, I get it, I need to trust in Christ, I can't trust in myself. But then we always do still try to find some way to add something of our own good works to what Christ has done for us on the cross. We want to add our works to Christ and his finished works. Which is why in Ephesians 2, Paul falls down all over himself to make sure that you understand you cannot do that. We are saved by grace through faith alone. 
Even the faith that you need in order to repent and trust in Christ is a gift from you. If you say that that's a work, you're adding something of yourself to something of Him, which equals nothing. A very famous pastor used to say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But as soon as you say, Jesus plus something of myself, you lose it all. Did I say that right? Good. This is the reason why the reformers talked about grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, the authority of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. The Roman Catholic Church always preached a gospel of grace. They always preached salvation by faith. That's not the problem. They say you need to be saved by grace plus good works. You need to be saved by faith plus the sacraments. You can have authority of the Bible plus the church, right? It's Jesus plus the human priesthood. No, friends, it's Christ and Christ alone. And if you, at this moment, are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then you can have great confidence. If you can look at your life and say, I don't have anything to offer God other than the honest admission that I'm a failure and I need Him, then you can trust that you have Him.